Hello, and welcome once again to another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we continue to walk through the book of Exodus, chapters 15 through 18, as Pastor Josh shows us how God provides for his people through escape from Egypt, providing water, providing manna, and providing salvation. You can join us by turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, God Provides for His Special People. All right, Exodus chapter 15, we'll pick up here in a little bit and read, but first let me, let me open us up in a word of prayer, so if you'll bow with me and let's ask for God's help. Or Father... Lord, what is about to happen here? God, we feel the weight of it. God, I feel the weight of it. Um, Father, even times this is just terrifying to think about all that is going on right now. That, Lord, a, a literal war is raging in the spiritual world over what we will do right now. Whether or not, oh God, I'll preach truth and then whether or not we will all hear it Pay attention to it. Receive it without resistance. Humble ourselves. Obey it. I'm I'm just asking and begging, oh God, that you will send your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that you conquer every heart in this room. Father, I need you to conquer my pride and wicked desires and sinful things going on inside of me. And Lord, we all need you, oh God every rebel part of our hearts that are in defiance to you, God, we're, we're longing that you will just right now win. God, bring us to bow. Bring us to see. Father, bring us to see your glory, your truth, and God, that we will gladly, Lord, with happy hearts, submit to you to see you as our treasure. And so, Father, we ask for all the help that we need. There are hundreds of things, things we don't even understand that needs to happen right now so that the work of the word can happen without restraint. So God, I'm just asking everything we need, please come and do it. Come and do it, oh God. Please protect this time. Um, Father, I pray that you will not allow the enemy to come like the birds in the parable of the sower and the seeds and take away your word. God, give us hearts that lean in and want your truth. Captivate our attention. And then, God, we beg, bring us to be a people who respond in obedience and faith, oh God, to your word and your truth. Lord, there are challenging things, but also very, very glad things in your text that we're going to look at. So please, God, I pray, lead us to your truth for the glory of your name, Prepare worship and love for yourself, O God. And we ask this through the name of Christ. Amen. You may remember some time ago, as we were studying through the life of David, that we made mention to the fact that at the close of World War II, Europe was left with crisis on a lot of different levels. And one of those crises was what to do with the thousands of orphans who had been created by the war. And some time ago, we talked about the failure to thrive epidemic. Uh, We talked about our relational needs and the way that God has wired us up and such, but that was not the only issue. There was another issue that got identified and had to be addressed as well in the course of trying to care for these orphans. 
At a certain point, it was discovered that the orphans were not sleeping. That a large percentage would lie awake through the night restless, unable to get the much-needed sleep. And so attention was given to trying to figure out, okay, what, what, what's going on? What, what, how do we need to help? Is this, the, is this the trauma from the war? Is this the missing of their parents and sadness? What's going on? And Well, in the course of their investigation and talking with the kids, they began to find some things in their thinking, and then they acted on it. What they started doing was before bed every night, they began to give the children a piece of bread not to eat, but just to hold on to. And what they found is instantly the children began to sleep. The anxiety about not having food the next day, the fear of, of not knowing whether they would eat uh, left them with worry and uncertainty. And, and it, was the, it was that tangible hope Something in their hands that tomorrow there will be something there that gave them enough security, enough peace that they began to be able to sleep. We humans are wired up to need security. We're wired up to need confidence for tomorrow, to need hope. Fear handcuffs us. Anxiety restrains us from living the life of full and abundant joy that God created us for and wants us to walk in. And as a remedy for those longings that we feel, our God provides. The Bible says that God is the provider for the cattle on the hills and the deer in the woods. God is the provider for the sparrow in the field and even the, the flowers of the field. And God tenderly, but also powerfully speaks to us in his word and tells us that he is the provider for his people. You and I have longings for certainty and God provides. God provides not only by providing, okay, but does it make sense that God provides by the promise of provision? So God meets our needs and that's great, but God also meets this deeper need of the the, the longing for confidence, the longing for hope for tomorrow by giving us promises of provision. God is the provider of all mankind, but God makes special promises to his people. For his people. You, you who are in Christ this morning, God knows you. Like saying he knows you by name like is, a, is a ridiculous understatement. Jesus said he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your deepest thoughts. He knows you better than you know you. He knows your thoughts before you think your thoughts. And to you, you who are in covenant with Christ through the blood of his son, the father personally provides for his people as a father. So, so, so track this, understand this. Yes, we can say that when an unbeliever eats, he has been sustained by the kindness and the provision of God. But when God's people are provided for, those who are in Christ, God has done so as a father to his children and he has made promises to us. Promises which the unbeliever does not have. In our study through 
walking through the Old Testament and, and seeing these the storyline and the theological foundations that God lays, we come to a, a section here in Exodus, kind of right in the middle of Exodus, where there's this section where God lays down these theological foundations which are intensely practical. God communicates to his people, I have you. I am for you. I care for you. I will be with you and I will supply what you need. God speaks practically, but also just very tenderly to our souls to have confidence. For God to say, I never forget you. I know your every need and I, when you ask, I will meet your needs. And so what I want to do is roll through a series of passages here that are all tied together. God put them all in the, kind of this, this section here of Exodus, kind of the, the end of 14 and into chapter 17, just this sandwich part in the middle here that there's this theme that runs through that God lays down all of these uh, truths that we see. So let's see how it is that God teaches this. In thinking about the storyline of what has happened here, God has just provided, let's think about some of the things God has provided. He's provided redemption from slavery to his people through the plagues. They come to the Red Sea and right, right on the heels of, of their deliverance, God provides another deliverance from death and captivity when he parts the Red Sea and they walk through on dry ground. On the other side, like we read that section, it's one, one of the reasons I wanted to read it, that song that Moses sings, I just, it's just so fantastic. On the other side, with their enemies floating in the water behind them, what does Israel do? The first part of 15, Moses sings. He leads Israel to sing a song of celebration and worship. There's, a, there's kind of even a poetic point made. Guys, God provides laughter for his people. God has not only rescued them, he's put a song in their mouths. He's put joy in their hearts. You, you see that part there where Miriam uh, grabs the timbrel leads the women of Israel out and they, what do they do? They, they're dancing. They're singing. They're rejoicing. They've just come out of 430 years of slavery. How much dancing you think they've done the last four centuries? How many festivities? How much just, just relaxed, stress-free, glad-hearted joy do you think they have known over the last four centuries? Guys, we, we got to see this. God has not only provided necessities, he's put a song of joy in their hearts. Like this is a big moment here. I love that line in, in, in this song of Moses where he says, the Lord is my strength and song. Yahweh is my song in my mouth. He is my treasure. He's the one who gives me delight and joy. You Christian, you Christian, you have the same promises from God. He is not only the one who has delivered you from hell. He is not only the one who meets your daily needs. You, you listen to me very closely. He is the one who puts a song in your mouth and joy in your heart. It's available to us. It's often been pointed out that Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine at a wedding party so that the joy 
filled festivities of the wedding celebration could continue. Jesus put wine in their glass and the father chose that as the opening miracle of Jesus's ministry. You are learning things about the heart of God. You are seeing things about who he is and his desires for his people. That's not the only truth of God. We've got a culture that loves to embrace that part and then neglect other parts, but do treasure that that you see about God. God has provided for his people here. And God continues to provide over the course of these early days. Chapter 15, jump to verse 22 there. Let's read a section here. 15:22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. How far in the story are we after the uh, Red Sea incident? We are three days. Surely everybody will stay happy now, right? Verse 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Marah in the Hebrew means bitterness. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What should we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree and he threw it into the waters and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation and there he tested them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God to do what is right in his sight, to give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on which I have put on the Egyptians for I, the Lord, am your healer. All right, so track a couple things that God is showing here. First, God brings his people to bitter water. Don't miss that. He intentionally, like this wasn't like accident, like, oh, I'm supposed to take them the other direction, forgot. No, God intentionally brings them to bitter waters. Friends, this is a test. You and I need this. This is God providing the people with a test, providing to instruct their faith, bring them to holiness, and the people grumble. We're going we're to talk a whole lot more about grumbling. We've already mentioned that several times in this story here. Well, there's going to be a whole section in the book of Numbers on grumbling that we look at here. This is what happens when you don't trust God. This is what happens whenever uh, you have uh, this idea that God's supposed to give you what you want instead of what he understands we need. The people grumble. They should have just trusted God, asked for help, and waited for his provision. Instead, they get angry. They get Ticked off at Moses, Moses prays and God answers Moses. And then God provides clean water. But did you notice that it's said even better than that? Verse 25, they come to bitter waters that are undrinkable. Like you die if you drink the water. God provides, kind of weird and uncanny way. Moses, there's a tree over there. Throw the tree in the bitter waters. Okay. Throws the tree in the bitter waters and the water is made clean. But did you notice how verse 25 says it? It's more than clean. It's not just, hey, the water won't kill you, but it tastes like mm, trash. Okay? No, the water became sweet. Guys, you're seeing things about God. You are seeing things about our God. He takes what is bitter for his people and he makes it sweet 
And he does so through the tree. I don't think I'm overextending the interpretation there. I believe God intentionally does things like that in scripture so that we would have little moments that we can see little pictures like this and see the future of every Christian is that everything you have ever tasted that is bitter, it is going to be made sweet for you through the tree on which Christ hung. God is taking his people and redeeming them out of what is bitter and into what is sweet. Friends, this is so good. This is how God redeems. He redeems you into his joy. He he brings you into gladness. He puts a song in your mouth and joy in your heart. And, And listen, we are never promised Christian that right now, this life, the bitterness will all end. But we have the promise of sweetness. And here's the thing about hope. This is the whole thing about what hope does. The hope of sweetness to come brings some sweetness now. It's not the ultimate. It's a foretaste. It's a little piece of bread you get to sleep through the night with. But it is the promise of God of his good for you in the future. He provides them with water. And then God makes that promise there in verse 26. He tells them, if you will obey me, if you will heed my commandments, if you'll do all these things. Look at the last thing he says there. I, the Lord, and again, I want to call your attention every time the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D are used. This is Yahweh. You just see it over and over again. I, Yahweh, am your healer. In other words, I'm the one who cares for you. I am not a God who is distant and mute. I am the God who is actively involved in your life. I am your healer. Um, There have been different times in church history where largely people thought of God as really far away. There are even Christians who struggle with that personally, of of this idea that God is not near, God is far away. And this is God saying, I am near. I am active. He's the God who is intimately involved in your life. The Lord is our healer. And of course you understand, but we do have to say it Because of the presence of a prosperity gospel in our culture, we do need to make clear, this is not a promise that you get healing every time that you want healing, but this is the promise of God that there will ultimately be healed, healing. The blind will see with joy in the kingdom to come. The lame will dance. Next, look over at chapter 16. Continue to see more ways that God provides. Let's read the first five verses there. Then they set out from Elim, And all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. This is what it got named, the wilderness of sin. And we're going to see why in the days to come. Which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, and I believe with dramatic voices, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. God redeemed his people and brought them out into a desert wilderness. This is in between on the path from Egypt to the land of Canaan up here. It was supposed to be just a trek through here along the way God is going to provide. But if you think about it, this is the desert. So what are they going to eat? 
How are they going to keep drinking? They drank once. You're going to have to drink more than that. How, how are we going to keep being okay? By the way, you do notice that God lets them go hungry for a little bit. You're also seeing some things about your God, okay? Lets them go hungry for a little bit to feel their need. When we come to the book of Numbers, we're going to see that in the census that is taken, there are more than 600,000 men old enough to go to war. And so scholars a lot of times take conservative estimates here and say that there is roughly 2 million total Israelites. I think it's highly likely the number was larger than that, but go conservative, conservative estimate, 2 million total Israelites, and they're in a desert. What are they going to eat? To the one who casts the stars in the sky, this is nothing. He won't even sweat before breakfast to provide for them every day, but this is not always the way that we think. God provided like this. Six days of the week, a bread, a a fine bread-like substance would fall from heaven like a dew in the morning. And Israel would walk out. They would gather it up. They would make it into cakes and little breads and things like this. They called it manna. And in the evening, the Lord would provide quail for them to eat. We'll see that at other places. But this is, this is pretty spectacular. This is supernatural. Every night, God provided for his people by raining down manna from heaven. But we also see there were other instructions. You're in chapter 16. Jump to verse 19 for a second. Let's read a section here. Because it all has a point. Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. So, meaning, you gather it for that day, don't hang on to it until tomorrow. Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. Maybe think about two quarts there. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, eat it today. For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. God gave the stipulation that none of it was to be kept overnight. And of course, people did because that's what sinners do. They don't listen to God. So some of them kept it overnight. And what happened is it grew worms, became nasty and stunk up their house. So they learned very quickly, like, you got to obey God, even if we want to rebel against him. But here's what God gives the instruction for. They were not to be stockpiling the bread. God emphasized it would to be today's bread, daily bread, bread for just today. So why, 
Why is this the case? Well, God gives us multiple chapters in Scripture teaching on this kind of thing. But here's the simplest point of it. God wants us to understand and feel our dependence on Him. See, friends, it's similar to how the Bible will teach, the point is linked, to how the Bible will teach that riches and wealth are dangerous. If someone gives you a million dollars today, you know, Mother's Day idea, okay? Someone gives you a million dollars today, you're not in sin before God by having the money. But here's what the Bible does say. What has just happened is dangerous. It's dangerous. Because we have sinful hearts that have a hair trigger tendency to running away from God. We have a hair trigger tendency to trusting ourselves and not trusting God. One of the things that scripture will say is riches, wealth, excess have this danger of putting a stumbling block in our paths that we will, we will, we will lose that sense of dependence on God. Deuteronomy will even go on to say that uh, whenever we are, our lives are fat with excess, that we'll look at our lives kind of like what Nebuchadnezzar did as he looked out over his kingdom and congratulate ourselves, be like, by the sweat of my brow, I made this good life that I have and forget the Lord our God. Friends, excess has the danger of, make, of making us forget that God is sovereign over literally every single breath we take. Your heart continues to beat because King Jesus is sustaining your life right now. He upholds the cosmos by the word of his power. Whether you feel it or not, every single moment your life is sustained by nothing but the sheer kindness and pleasure of God. Like a little boy with a toy sailboat and he is blowing so that it will float across the water, all he would have to do is simply stop and it would quit. Your life is sustained by the kindness and active work of God. God wouldn't have to go to any great effort to take your life. He would simply have to withdraw, just take a step back and stop the sustaining of the cosmos of the earth being held in its orbit and of your heart beating. And listen, friends, God wants us to feel that. Like, that's the reality. When we fail to feel gratitude to God, what the problem is, there are things we're not seeing. Like, if you got a glimpse into the heavenly realm and saw that it is God who is sending down active grace moment by moment, breath by breath, and continuing your life, we would instantly feel a lot more gratitude because we would see the reality of it. We struggle with this whole faith and sight thing. God wants us to know that he sustains us. And God wants us to feel dependence. God wants us to feel a gratitude for that. And so we're shown that there are certain things that help us recognize that. And there are certain things that can deceive our hearts. And the Bible says that excess is one of those things that runs the danger of causing us to forget. So God is teaching a whole lot of stuff by this, this manna. There's a whole book of theology here. Things we won't even have time to cover. God is teaching things like delicious food is not the point of life. You can live a full and satisfying life without having access to savory food. Do we need to hear that as Americans? Yeah. 
God is teaching things like the difference between wants and needs. God is teaching things uh, like contentment. He, he teaches something we're not even going to have a lot of time for today. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. But he's also teaching this truth right here, friends, of our dependence on God, that he is our provider. You know, I have never worried about food a day in my life. Never. And I'm not saying that's because my faith is so great. I'm just saying prideful presumption and part of that shows my age. I can tell you my grandparents didn't live like that. My grandparents who lived through two world wars and a great depression, they didn't think like that. Uh, my parents who were raised by that generation. Do you remember how much conversation used to take place about the evil of wasting food? Like, where's that conversation, God? <laughs> what has happened is we are now so far removed from the last time that as a, at least as a whole culture, we had to worry about where food would come from. We just don't even think about it. We just wake up every day and have this sort of pride. And I say most of us have this prideful presumption that food will always be easy. Some of that comes back to, well, because we got it all figured out now. Listen, friends, it is a prideful presumption to fail to feel our dependence on God for every bite. Like the application here is not, okay, now I want you all go home and worry about where food's going to come from. No, that's, that's not the point, okay? Because trust in God is to lead us to have a happy peace that I know that he will supply. But what we are often tempted to do is rely on the human ingenuity, rely on our riches, rely on this culture that we have going for our food rather than recognizing every bite comes from the hand of my God who provides for you. Every bite of food that you take is from his hand. God brought his people into a circumstance they could not work the ground and there was no fruit trees to just go pick, pick from. God brought them into a situation they could not provide for themselves so that God could show them, I have you and I am the one who supplies your need. Friends, with you and I today, it's not that different. Every bite of food, every sip of water, every night you sleep in a bed, that is all still from the hand of God, but he's designed a world that we work and participate with his providence. You are, not, you are ultimately helpless, friends. There is no strength you have that a single fever couldn't take away. Well, let's look at more ways that God provides. Jump to chapter 17 for a moment here. 17, let's, let's read the first seven verses here. Let's see this water thing continue on. Verse one, then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt? to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do to this people a little more and they will stone me? And the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight 
of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Throughout the journeys of the Israelites um, in the wilderness for the next 40 years, they will keep encountering this rock. And each time they are in need, a rock will supply water. That's an uncommon thing. A rock will sometimes be struck other times there will be other instructions by God and they will provide. Two million Israelites will drink and fill up their skins of containers. God will provide for them. And again and again, this rock God will use to meet their needs. So let's, let's list it off thus far. God has provided redemption from slavery, deliverance from death, Song and dance and joy, testing for their faith, water and healing and food. There's probably more, but that's a helpful list. But here is another major provision of God that is explained in the midst of this as well that we need to spend some time on. It, it is the Sabbath. God provided a Sabbath. Six days of the week, the manna fell. They were not to keep any of the extra, but on the sixth day, it would be Friday, according to how we keep time, name it, twice as much manna would fall, and the people were instructed to gather twice as much. Normally, when you kept manna overnight, it grew rank, but on the sixth day, supernaturally, God preserved it so that on the seventh day, it would not fall. No manna would fall. Still, someone out to go look for it, even though Moses told them, it did not fall, and what God told them is, eat the excess from the sixth day that you may stay in your dwellings and you don't go out and work. Not a day of journeying. Not a day of gathering firewood. Number of other commands that God gave them with that. But, but here is what God is providing. God is providing rest for his people. Let's talk about that for a second. There are some truths you just don't get in your 20s that you do later. I think this is one of them. God created us to be creatures who are weak, limited. We grow tired. Every time you grow tired, God is preaching a sermon to you. The sermon title is, You Are Not God. You are not omnipotent. You are not limitless. You are not almighty. You are a needy creature. We are creatures who need constant uh, things coming into our lives. We need constant oxygen, water, food. And then even with this constant supply of things, we grow weary. When we do not rest, what happens? Well, when we're in a wise cycle of life, when things are going well, we're in that wise cycle of right amount of work, right amount of leisure, right amount of rest. What is it? We're the best versions of ourselves that we want to be. You all who have stressful jobs, jobs that overwork you, what happens when the stress piles up? What happens whenever you are, you are working too much and not getting enough uh, downtime, enough time for your mind to just take a breath, enough rest? What happens? We become some of the worst versions of ourselves. I become that irritable, snippy, grumpy dad that I don't want to be. You and I are limited creatures. We need rest. Friends, sometimes the most godly thing you can do, sometimes the most spiritual thing you could do is take a nap. Jesus did, so I always argue. 
Some, sometimes, literally, the most godly thing that you could do is take a day off. Take it, because your body and your souls are intimately connected. We, we find this. What goes on with the body affects where we are spiritually. And God provides for this. God provides rest for his people. Now, now we also need to hear the other side as well. And there are some people who, who need one truth more than the other. There are some who have maybe have a tendency towards laziness and they need to hear the fact that God calls us to steadfast work. And, you know, whenever he designed this, he didn't design six days of rest and one day of work. Okay, he designed six days of work and one day of rest. We, we see his design for this world and for the function of our lives. There's this other crowd, however, like German-American Dubois County residents who need to hear about rest because of tendencies that we have. The Sabbath it's God giving the gift of rest to his people. But it's actually more than that. It goes deeper than that. Because consider this as well, friends. There's, there are two kinds of provision here. It's not only God providing rest, but it's also about this. Why is it that so many people say they can't rest? I can't stop. Like, I got too much to do. I rest, the world caves in. I, just, I got so much going, I can't stop working. Later, God will teach the people in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, when it comes harvest time and your crops are in the fields, for a non-farming community, when it comes harvest time, there's a crucial kind of hurry. Like, you got to get the crops in. So bad things happen when the crops stay in the field for too long. The longer it stays out there, the more terrible things can happen. Storms can come. Blight can come. Uh, animals can eat it. You need, there's a rush. we got to get it in. God says when it comes harvest time, you are going to be tempted to break the Sabbath and go to the fields because you feel this hurry. But I, the Lord, am caring for you. I will protect you. Friends, God is giving the gift also of security. God is giving you the gift of peace. He's giving you the gift of confidence in his care for you tomorrow. God is saying to you, it's okay, you can rest. There are a lot of human, we, all of us have different ways we're wired up in different struggles. Some people to hear God say, it's okay, you can rest is just like a breath of fresh air. Can I, can I apply this a little bit to Mother's Day, mamas? Your God who loves you is saying to you, it's okay to rest. Um, sit down. I, I know 45 things are screaming for your attention. Some of them are literally screaming. I know your house is probably a wreck if you've got young children in your home. And I, I, just, I just know so many mamas who feel guilty. Uh, feel guilty about going and taking time. Go, go, go feel guilty, maybe even about sitting down during the day or taking a, a day to go decompress. Can you hear your God telling you, it's okay, I want you to rest? Husbands and fathers, we will be serving our wives by enabling that to happen. We will, we will be fulfilling Ephesians 5. Loving our wives as Christ loved the church by providing for that. Mamas, can I, can I encourage you with the fact that you're actually serving your family by resting to bring your soul to a, to a peaceful place of strength? Mamas, can I convince you to sit down and read your Bible during the day? Uh, by the way, the Bible is always connecting rest and worship together. There is a point to see there. To sit down Read scripture and let the words and truths of God roll over you 
and you are a different person when you stand up than when you sat down? God is speaking to his people and saying this. You don't have to run around like a stressed maniac. I am providing for you. You can rest. I will care for you. To God's covenant people, God will supply you with all that you need for joy. And that includes your rest. Now, as we talk about the Sabbath, um, let me subpoint here for a second because there's questions that come out about this, about how does this apply to us? The Sabbath day, like are we supposed to, we supposed to still see this, this whole concept of the Sabbath has been a controversial topic um, in the church in the new covenant. Uh, in, in fact, if you will read the reformers and the Puritans and Jonathan Edwards, and Charles Spurgeon, all these dudes that I just love, they all taught that Sunday is the new Christian Sabbath. So to, to help you understand a little bit here about the shift from the day, the first day of the week, that is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And we see a shift in the New Testament, the new covenant time, um, from the primary day of rest and worship, uh, shifting from the seventh day to the first day of the week, okay? Because back at creation, we saw this ordinance there. God created in six days, made the seventh day special for an observance, invited us into his rest. That was the great work of God. In the new covenant, the resurrection of Christ is the great work of God's new creation, this new covenant. And we see the apostles lead a shift to the primary day of rest and worship going to the first day of the week, Sunday. That's why we are all gathered here this morning and not yesterday morning. There's a shift because of a change in the covenant that is there. But many of these older guys that I love and still many even Baptists today have called Sunday today the new Christian Sabbath. So here's the question. Has the Sabbath been fulfilled as a part of the old covenant in Christ or is it still in place? How are we supposed to view this? Well, let me first of all say, I think it's one of those places where there's room for latitude um, and there are Baptists and scholars who view it both ways. But to tell you where I am on it and why I think that way, I believe that the first day of the week, Sunday, which, by the way, one time in the New Testament, it's called the Lord's Day. It's given a new name, Jesus's Day, the Lord's Day. I do not believe that it is a Sabbath, a technical Sabbath. But still, but that the principle of one day in seven being spent primarily in rest and worship, which God established back at creation, like this is the principle that has endured through the history of this world, that that principle still remains, that this Lord's Day is something special, but that it is not a technical Sabbath. That matters of whether or not we should read some of the Old Testament regulations about where to happen on the Sabbath or not happen on the Sabbath. Um, listen to a couple passages from the New Testament. If you want to jot them down, Colossians uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let me read that to you real quick. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he says, no one is to be your judge over how you treat or look at a Sabbath. 
Romans chapter 14, uh, verses 5 and 6 says this. It's talking about all the questions we have of Christian liberty. What some people eat and some people are not okay with drinking wine and some Christians are okay with drinking wine. How are we supposed to view these kinds of things? He says this, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. He who eats, does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. If the Sabbath was meant to be a part of this new covenant, a command, I believe the New Testament would have said it at least once. And we even have a few passages kind of like this, which in my mind only makes sense if the Sabbath is not a specific command, but that it was fulfilled along with many of the things Jesus fulfilled, like the sacrificial system in his death and resurrection. So how should we view the Lord's day. I'll say what the Holy Spirit said in Romans 14. Let each of you be convinced in your own mind. Some of us will see things differently as to what we think are okay. It's a conversation pastors have sometimes. Are you okay with hunting on Sunday or not? Come to your convictions. Let me give, let me give just two cautions, however, in looking at how you view this. Number one, if our Reformed heroes maybe went too far in spiritualizing Sunday. We have gone far too far in secularizing it. And secondly, a change of law from the old covenant to the new covenant does not negate the fact that you have been designed by God as a creature who needs rest. And the principle of a one day in seven seems to be something God established here. You can fight your need for rest you will always lose to your own misery. So at the end of that sub point and looking at that, hopefully that helps us with understanding. We can still have those conversations afterwards if you have more questions about it. But let me try to apply this. Even if the technical Sabbath is not a command, God's promise of rest still remains. God wants to provide for you. He wants your heart to have peace. He wants you to feel secure and safe in his care. He is your provider. Don't trust your ingenuity. Trust the providential care of God. He gives you confidence for the future. Listen to me, friends. You will have what you need when you need it. You will not have what you need now for what you will need later. Trust him. You will have what you need when you need it. You know there's another whole sermon about we got to be careful how we use God's resources. God never promises to provide for your bloated mortgage payment, but he does provide for our needs when we need it, whatever that grace is. There will be moments you need courage. He will provide courage. There will be moments you need a faith that is bigger than what you have right now. He will supply you. We are called to ask and seek and knock, but he gives the promise of provision. So I am hoping that these truths are already giving your heart peace, but we're not done. In fact, we're not even close. We're almost out of time. I'm almost done like that in that sense. But when it comes to like the full extent of what this means, there is something even bigger 
And I'm sure you know where we're going because we constantly keep seeing this. What God did in the old covenant is meant to point, neon sign pointing to what is bigger, ultimate, and eternal in Christ. So let me tell you, your body has needs, but so does your soul. If your body does not have its needs met, there are consequences. If your body is undernourished, then you will live, but you will not thrive. A vitamin deficiency will leave you anemic, weak, tired, sluggish. Did you know that malnourished children have impeded brain development? Did you know that on average the world is taller than it was 200 years ago because of the access to healthy food that we have right now? If you are poorly nourished, you will live but not thrive. And if you are completely cut off from the body's needs, then you will die. Friends, take every single part of that and now apply it to your souls. What God preaches to us and tells us is your soul has needs just as your body has needs. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You Christian, let me first address you who are in Christ. You are confident that you are in covenant with him. You've been made right by the blood of Christ because you have trusted in Christ. You have spiritual life. You've been born again. There is still a calling on you for spiritual nourishment. It is an unfortunate thing that in this culture's version of Christianity, there is an awful lot of anemic, weak, sluggish, impeded, malnourished souls from a lack of effort in feeding on the things that God provides. Scripture tells us that all of the spiritual benefits and blessings that God gives to us, these are what strengthen and nourish your soul. The, the word is called food for us. But then, if you are not in Christ, if you are not born again, if you have not turned to Christ to be saved, and maybe even, maybe even as I say that kind of phrase, you're just not heard that kind of language before. This is what I want to tell you. God says something that the world does not. And I'm putting a crisis before you as to who you're going to listen to. God speaks to you in scripture and he says, if you have not turned to Jesus Christ to be saved, if you have not cast your faith on him, you are spiritually dead. You're lost. You're helpless. You're not at peace with God. You're not right with God. You're not born okay. And I know all the voices of culture, they're always telling you all these things like, you're great, everybody's great, everybody's beautiful, everything's fine. That's not God's message to you. Unless you have specifically come into covenant with Jesus Christ, you are at war with God. You are not right with him and you have a need that is greater than any other. Ephesians 2 and numerous of the places where Jesus preached, he speaks to you and he says, you are spiritually dead and your greatest need is not more money, not a better job. Your greatest need is to be made alive. You need what God offers. So how do we get it? Friend, does it make sense to you that Jesus said, I am the bread of life? Does it make sense to you that Jesus said, I am the living water? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the 
life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Does it make sense that Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, I came that you may have life and you may have it more abundantly. He said, I I speak these things so that your joy may be made full. The New Testament speaks to us and says, you know that rock that they encountered in the wilderness over and over again? You know what the New Testament says? The rock was Christ. I got some questions about that, but I believe what that means is when God said, I'll go before you and I'll stand there, that was Christ. Do you realize that every single thing that God provided for Israel and put these theological foundations, I am your healer, I am your provider, everything God provided there, Jesus comes to us in the New Testament and says, yeah, I'm that for your soul. I'm the bread of life for your soul. I'm the living water to give you eternal life. You come to me, I give you rest. In fact, even the Sabbath itself, This preaches to us. Hebrews 4 comes to us in the New Testament and says that the Sabbath is a sermon preaching Christ to us. Because think about what Christ has done. Christ offered his life as a sacrifice for the sins of all who will come to him. Jesus paid it all. Jesus has accomplished everything necessary for you to right now in this instant, receive salvation and eternal life. If you trust in Christ, does it make sense that faith, faith in Christ to rest in him is the opposite of you running around trying to make yourself righteous? So there's one way of thinking about this where I got to go do all these good works. I got my, my hands. I need works. I need deeds. I need to earn merit with God. And God says, you'll never get there. Here's how you'll receive it. I'll give it all to you right now as a gift if you'll stop working and trusting your work and rest in Christ. Faith is the opposite of working. Faith is receiving from God rather than me thinking I go make myself righteous. The Sabbath is still yours, Christian but it's yours in a different way. God is saying, I'll give you rest. You rest from the stress and the turmoil of thinking, I got to make myself right with God. And God will give you all of the righteousness of Christ. God will give you full and complete pardon and forgiveness in one moment. Listen to me, you can have it in the next 60 seconds. All in one moment. If you will cast your faith onto Christ. Turn from rebellion to God. You're making the decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ and go after him. There is a heart turning of submission to him, but you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Friend, God is your provider. Christian, God is your provider. If you are not in Christ, God will be your provider if you will come to him. And the very first thing he wants to give you is salvation, eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Oh, our Father, we pray that you look on us with mercy and that you meet our every need, oh God. Please supply us and give us your help. Fathers, we leave here today, we ask for your mercy of safety to be honest, but God, 
Whatever it is spiritually that we need to happen, God, I pray that you will deal with every soul that is in here, oh God. Turn hearts to yourself. Please give us your blessing as we leave, oh God. We pray these things through the name of Christ. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, God Provides for His Special People. Tune in again next week as we're led through God's Word by Pastor Ben Hartwick. True Vine Baptist Church also invites you to like our Facebook page or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.